Hello and welcome to In Relation To, a show that seeks to give you insight into news developments by promoting global discourse in a changing world. Our goal with this podcast is not to scratch the surface of what is happening globally, but rather it is to dive deep and gain a better understanding of it. This podcast is brought to you by Boston University. Hi everyone, I'm Faizan and I'll be one of your hosts today. I'm Maria, one of your hosts, and today we're going to be interviewing uh, a very special guest, Ambassador Mark Storella. Ambassador Mark Storella is uh, a current professor of the practice of diplomacy and director of the African Studies Center of Boston University. Among other things, uh, he was uh, the United States Foreign Service Officer for over three decades serving as ambassador to Zambia, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees and Migration, and Dean of the Leadership and Management School of the Foreign Service Institute. Welcome. We're so glad that you have been able to join us here today. Maria Faison, it's a pleasure to be with you. So, let's begin with the interview. You have served with the State Department as a Foreign Service Officer. Could you tell us how you got your start in a career in diplomacy? Sure. I had no idea that I was going to go into diplomacy. And when I went to university, I was mostly interested in the sciences. But I took a course freshman year as a lark on Chinese history. And honestly, it was a course that changed my life. I saw that there was a whole world I knew almost nothing about, and I thought it was fascinating. And so I slowly moved farther and farther away from that and started studying international relations, government, East Asia. And then when I graduated from, I went ended up going to the Fletcher School. And when I graduated from there, I couldn't get the job I wanted. And instead, I got a job with the Department of the Navy scraping barnacles off of submarines. I actually wasn't scraping them. I was writing contracts to help other people scrape them. But the Navy made a mistake, and they gave me uh, a rotation to the State Department. And when I saw that, I fell in love, and I never turned back. Wow. <laughs> what do you mean that the state made a mistake? Well, if they, if they wanted me to stay writing contracts to have barnacles scraped off of submarines, they should have left me in the Department of the Navy. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's really super cool how, like, fate sort of, like, put you in that position. And it all worked out from there. So you've had a very long and interesting career that spanned over three decades. Like Maria said, you've served in several different positions, such as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees and Migration. And a fun fact is you oversaw over $2 billion in humanitarian assistance across the Middle East, Africa, Asia. You served as Deputy Chief of Mission in Belgium and the Deputy Permanent Representative to the UN in Geneva, where you were part of the US-Russia reset, which is a very interesting story. You've also negotiated with the Khmer Rouge, the North Koreans, among others. So I wanted to ask you, could you tell us a little bit more about like all of your roles and in specific, what was like one unique challenge of each different role? Well, there are a lot of roles, so I can't tell you the unique challenge for every single one of them. But I'll tell you some things that are unifying. All the roles you spoke about were senior positions. I spent a long time in junior positions. And in those positions, I spent all of my time trying to learn from the more senior people. Uh, there was a lot of sense of apprenticeship in American diplomacy. You learn from the senior people you go with them on trips, you listen to how they deal with things, and then you try to do the same thing. You write a million sets of memos and talking points 
And then ultimately, you're on the receiving end of all of that. When you get to those senior positions, if you listen carefully to what Faison said, there are things that unify them. One is you are always leading a team. And so you may think that diplomacy is all about studying what Kissinger thought, but actually a lot of it is about motivating and taking care of your own people. That's some of the, one of the things that I tried really hard to instill in folks when I was the dean of the leadership school for the Department of State. Another thing is you have to manage big programs. $2 billion worth of programs is a lot of programs. And when you do that, you can't know every detail. So you have to learn how to trust your staff and know how much you need to know while still feeling, frankly, a little bit exposed because you can't know everything. In all of these positions, I also felt like the key thing to remember was that American diplomats represent the interests of the American people. It's easy to forget that. It's easy for people to think of diplomacy as about creating agreement, bridging differences, creating peace. You want to do all of those things, but the purpose of all of that is to advance the interests of the American people. What I found was that the best way to do that was by practicing what I call Aretha Franklin diplomacy, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Every single person around the world wants to be treated with respect. And they especially want to be treated with respect from representatives of big powers who they think might be arrogant or who might look down on them for whatever reason. If you treat people with respect, you can get so much more done. So those are the unifying principles. I think you mentioned how, as a diplomat, your job is to represent the people of the nation uh, in other states. And I was wondering how often the way that you thought that you would represent the people classed with the government's wants and desires. So first, it happens all the time. <laughs> American policy represents the interests of the American government and the American people. And sometimes that's very different from what folks in a different country might be thinking. When I was in Zambia, one of my jobs was to try to support the rights of LGBTQIA plus people. But it's a traditional society in Zambia. And I had to meet with the church groups and the church groups were often opposed to this. And I think it was very difficult sometimes to try to explain why the United States was supporting those rights when they actually didn't really even want to talk about it. So that's one example, but I can think of many others. In many countries that I served in overseas, we worked very hard not just to support the rights of, of certain groups, but very broad rights, like the rights to have a free election. Governments often don't want free elections because governments are in power and elections are a way they can lose power. So you, you find yourself uh, pressing for things that locals often will have trouble with, either the government or the broader population. The real challenge, I think, for a diplomat is to find a way to communicate effectively. Now we get to the bridging of the differences. Try to understand the local people, what their concerns are, and then make sure you're trying to respond to them too. After all, as I always reminded every single one of the staff members in all the embassies I worked at, we are guests in this country and remember that. Yeah. So shifting a little bit from your career in diplomacy, as you know, we live in an age of like great disruption. And there's so many different challenges that we wake up in the news and we read every day, you know, from supply chain disruptions to climate change to the war in Ukraine. 
And there's just a general mistrust in the ability of large international institutions. And so I had to ask, what's your opinion on sort of what the greatest challenge or threat to diplomacy is in this age of disruption, as we call it? Fizan, we could dedicate an entire program to that question. It's really the question of our time, I think. How do we deal with all this disruption? And frankly, Fezan, you understate the degree of disruption that's going on in the international system right now. You didn't even mention the simple fact of the rise of China, which is radically changing power relationships. At the same time, the end of the Soviet Union, and now we're still seeing kind of, I think, the death throes of the Soviet Union and what Putin is doing in Ukraine. Did you mention climate? This is one of the biggest challenges of all, and it's going to affect everything else. And we're living through COVID. Global health is a global crisis and it requires some kind of global response. So first, the disruptions are enormous. And to me, we see this right now, the difficulties this produces in the action of the UN Security Council. There are so many disagreements amongst important countries right now that the veto is being used all the time in the UN Security Council over issues that you might think are really obvious, peace and security issues like Ukraine, that should be really obvious, but we're not reaching agreement on those things. The UN Security Council, one of the key elements of the post-war order, is effectively dysfunctional because of the disruption that's upending relationships. That's one example. I think that we're also seeing countries press for changes in fundamental rules. Way back in 1948, we all agreed to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's something you sign onto when you join the United Nations. And yet right now we're seeing an effort to rewrite what that means. Are we talking about individual rights or are we talking about collective rights? Obviously China is playing a leading role in challenging the Western view, although I thought it was the international view, of what human rights are all about. So one of the difficulties I would say we're facing right now in this era of disruption is that we are changing the rules of diplomacy while we're trying to play the game of diplomacy. Now, I'm glad you asked this question. It shows that you folks are thinking about this, but what I'm really worried about, you asked what's the biggest challenge? To me, the biggest challenge is that many people don't understand the importance of this threat. There's a lot of complacency that these institutions will be able to hold up anyway, despite the pressure that they're under. And uh, what I think we have to recognize is, in fact, the institutions may not hold, and they may need to be revised in ways that we haven't even thought of yet. But complacency means we're gonna be blindsided. It means challenges are gonna come our way that we will not have prepared for. Diplomacy is at its most effective when it's preventive diplomacy. Solving problems is always harder, always more expensive, always more time consuming than preventing the problem before it happens. So complacency, I think, will lead us, unfortunately, to fall into the trap of not preventing problems before they happen. And that's going to be much harder. Wow, that's, that's really insightful. And I was just previously reading an article that was talking about how the same thing happened with the crisis in Ukraine, how many politicians, diplomats, ignored the kind of developments in Russia prior to the invasion, such as the annexation in 2014. And they were comparing it to how you first get a cavity and then you go to the doctor. You don't just, you know, prevent it. 
Well, Maria, this is much more complicated than just brushing your teeth and flossing. <laughs> Although you should do those things too. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, take care um, of your health. <laughs> um, so my question would be, so I think you kind of suggested preventative uh, diplomacy. What would that look like? If you could give us some examples. I'll give you an example that I worked on directly. And it has to do with one of the great disruptions of our time, which we have not even mentioned yet. And that is the disruption of mass migration. We've seen it in many different places. We've seen a million Rohingya refugees flood across the border into Bangladesh. We're seeing mass movements across the Sahara and the Sahel uh, to North Africa, in many cases uh, because of climate change. And we're seeing the movement, as you've seen in, on television all the time, of people in desperate circumstances taking to boats across the Mediterranean in the South China Sea, uh, different areas around the Horn of Africa, trying to find safety. Back in 2016, when I was working at the Department of State and the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration, we started an effort to put together some global compacts on refugees and migration that were supposed to be rules of the road, ways of helping people identify what they could do, what countries could do to support orderly migration. Those two documents exist. They don't have full support uh, around the world yet, but they provide some really good guidelines. That's an example of preventive diplomacy. That's um, very interesting. Um, I'm sorry, could you give us um, the name of the, the document? So that sure. One of them is called the Global Compact on Refugees, and the other one is called the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration. They were both produced through uh, a summit process that was launched at the United Nations General Assembly in 2016, and they were adopted in 2018. Okay, perfect. Now our listeners can have the chance to <laughs> look it up. Um, and if they want to study it more, they can take one of my courses, which yeah. deals with this. So I had to ask you, given you mentioned like all these huge disruptions, and many of these are at the global, global scale. Things like climate change, mass migration. And many people sort of, they open up the news, they read about like the latest crisis that's going on somewhere. And many people are either so used to seeing these crises that they've become almost desensitized, or they see these crises and they're like, this is huge, you know, like there's nothing that we can possibly do. And so it's so easy to feel discouraged or just, you know, not care. So how do you think we, as the upcoming generation, can actually start to tackle many of these huge disruptions through preventative diplomacy? Because the onus is on us, you know, this is the world that we're going to inherit that our children are going to inherit. So do you think that we can still sort of stem the flow? And if so, how? Well, no one should minimize the magnitude of these challenges. They're going to be enormous and your generation is going to have to deal with them. When I was your age, which was a long time ago, we used to have a phrase, I don't know if they still use it at all, think globally and act locally. But I think you folks have got to turn that on its head. I think you need to think locally and act globally. So what does that mean? That means you're here, most of you are in school. Um, study all these issues. Educate yourself about these issues. People do internships to gloss up their uh, resumes. Do an internship so you can have an impact. And then start now preparing yourself by studying what's really needed 
to become a diplomat, to become a UN civil servant, to become a leader of an NGO, to become a representative in the United States Congress or in your parliament from whichever country you're, you're from. And then you'll have the chance to act globally, I think. So I think you need to make a plan. Start now preparing yourselves, start preparing your skills and start preparing your knowledge and then work towards that goal where eventually the time will come and you may be the right person in the right place at the right time to make a difference. I'm gonna say something else about this though. Young people may think, what am I supposed to do? I'm not Bill Gates, you know, I, I'm not Ursula von der Leyen. How am I supposed to have any kind of impact? One of the amazing things we're seeing right now is that there are very young people like Greta Thunberg who changed the entire international debate on climate. Malala from Pakistan was able to put a real focus on education for women and for girls. And uh, Nadia Murad, a Yazidi, I once visited that area, though never, certainly never met with her, to me demonstrated that young people have a voice people around the world want to hear. And I want to say something about those three people. To me, they're united in something that may not be obvious. These are really courageous people. These are young people who took tremendous risks. And as I try to tell my students here at Boston University, uh, the Romans used to like to say that courage is not the only virtue, but it's the virtue that makes all other virtues possible. So I also urge you to have courage. That's very insightful. Thank you. I was wondering, so you mentioned uh, Greta Thunberg, and she was a person who, from a very young age, activated herself in social media and managed to have an impact. I was wondering, so what's what's the role of social media in having an impact before you have learned enough to actually act in a more, in a bigger scale in a way? So what's, what's, there, what's everything one can do before one feels fully prepared to act upon the knowledge? You know, believe it or not, I was alive before the internet existed. And I saw it grow up and we all thought that the internet was going to create this community across nations, across continents, across languages, across cultures that would create the opportunities for interest groups around the world to come together to solve problems. It turns out we've seen mostly the opposite, that somehow the internet and especially social media um, have permitted people to burrow into little groups. I personally fear very much that they have tended to exacerbate problems of racism and bigotry and sexism around the world. And I say that, Maria, because I don't know the answer to your question. I am really a neophyte at social media, and I don't know how to make my way through it. I find that when I write articles and I put them up on some social media or other, I frequently get comments that are anonymous. And anonymous comments are frequently full of hatred rather than engaging in some kind of reasoned debate, rather than assessing the issues, rather than expressing themselves in terms of where they come from, they hide where they come from. I think all of that's really bad. And I'm not sure where the solution in all of this is. I'm afraid that you folks um, are going to have to continue to engage in this because it's part of your everyday life. And I can't guide you very well, to be honest. So I'd be interested in what you think. 
I mean, the debate around social media as like a tool is really interesting because it allows people to really have their voice out there and has the possibility to like be a force for change for good. But like you mentioned, social media allows both sides of the coin to be like shared. And while that's a good thing because it could lead to reasoned debate, more often, like you said, we don't see that. We see a lot of polarization and hatred. And my next question was something very related to that. Given that how we've seen so much division, so much um, polarization, hatred, and how we see at, at the international order even, you know, countries just disagreeing and we have lost that ability to, it seems, compromise and sort of reach a deal that benefits everyone. Instead of a win-win, it's a lose-lose. Now, you've led many international negotiations. So my question to you is, how did you lead ne the negotiations in a way where you were able to focus more on interests and not positions and you didn't get rooted into that fighting over positions? These questions really all lock together in different ways. When I was a mid-level officer, not at the very beginning of my career, but in the middle of my career, one of my friends was the French desk officer, which is a great job to have at the State Department, being the principal person to organize our relations with France, albeit at a mid-level. And she had on her desk a very simple little phrase. It said, diplomacy is the art of letting other people have your own way. And I've thought about that a lot. And diplomacy cannot be the art of tricking people. Because if you trick people into accepting your position, the agreement's not going to be durable. There will be a sense of grievance. These things end up leading to the collapse of agreements and to war in, in the worst case. So I think that the key always is that that idea of explaining to people why their interests and your interests have something in common. Now, that's not always easy to do, but we can see cases right now that are some of these big disruptions where we have huge common interests. Uh, many of them are cases of what is often called the tragedy of the commons. I think uh, you and your listeners probably know about this idea that if you have a common area where people can graze, Many people will decide, well, I'm going to graze my sheep as much as possible. They eat all the grass, and then it's dead, and nobody has any grass. That's exactly what we're facing with climate. People will say, well, I'm going to keep producing carbon dioxide. I'm going to keep burning coal because I need the energy. And who knows? It's never going to affect me, or there's nothing I can do about it. We need to explain to people, yes, every single person, every single country makes a contribution to this, and you actually really do have interests in coming to some kind of common agreement. In the midst of what is otherwise a pessimistic discussion in many respects, remember, we did achieve an agreement in Paris that was a framework for reducing greenhouse gases. And we need to do better than that. But many people thought that was completely impossible. And the deal was cut in the end between the United States and China. First, the two biggest producers of greenhouse gases, but also two countries that often are seen as being at loggerheads right now. We easily can forget that the United States and China can find common interest. I look at another issue that is another case of the tragedy of the commons, where we've done a little bit better, not even close to as well as we should have done, 
and that is dealing with COVID. When COVID hit, one of the things we all saw was that vaccines were produced and immediately rich countries bought all the vaccines. Canada, the nicest people in the world, bought seven times as much vaccine as they needed. And that meant the poor countries had no vaccine. They were left at the end of the line. But the argument was made mostly by Europeans, by the French and the Germans and the European Union, but others as well, that we're not going to be safe unless we can control this pandemic wherever it is in the world. We actually, wherever you live, you have an interest on, in what's going on in Africa and the health of Africans or Asians or people in Latin America, anyone in the global south. And this group was put together called COVAX. It now has billions of dollars in investment to pay for vaccines. And we didn't get it done fast enough, but we now have a structure in place that actually can provide vaccines to try to help people around the world because we have a common interest in helping people around the world. And right now there's a negotiation going on in Geneva on a treaty on pandemics that will try to reach global agreement on how to proceed on these issues in the future. So I wouldn't lose hope altogether. We have common interests and we can teach people and we can discuss with people why these interests actually should lead to some kind of common action. So it sounds to me that the only way to get things to work is to appeal to egoistical motives of each nation, egoistical in the sense that they will benefit them. So there's not a sense that we can like achieve goals in uh, the sense of international of the international. <laughs> When I was in uh, Geneva, representing the United States to all the different UN bodies there, I think there were about 50 of them, we often clashed with a whole bunch, well, not often, every day we clashed with people over various things. And one of my nemesis was uh, the ambassador from Pakistan. He was a very, very capable diplomat. And I thought he was very cynical in the way you approach things. But nevertheless, over coffee in the lounge, he and I could have friendly conversations. And I asked him one day, do you think all of this effort in the United Nations and multilateral diplomacy is just a waste of time? Can we get anything done? And he said to me, and I'll just never forget it. He said, you know, in multilateral diplomacy, you have to be idealistic enough to have whatever it is you're trying to achieve to be worth achieving, but you'd better be realistic enough to have any chance of getting it done. That's what we have to do. Keep your ideals, but remember we live in the real world. That's really interesting because you think about how people have their own interests But then also we have like general interests of like the international system as a whole. And it's all about balancing your interests with like the interests of like the common good. So from all the negotiations you've led, such as the ones in Geneva with Russia, with the North Koreans, with the Khmer Rouge, do you have any interesting stories to tell about any of those? Because you've had quite the career from what I know. So are there any interesting sort of maybe like takeaways or little pieces of wisdom here and there that you'd, you'd like to impart? All right. Well, let me start by saying, Faison, you're being too generous. I didn't lead all those negotiations. I was often a member and sometimes a junior member on those negotiations. But I was in many of those negotiations. Let me say something about the Russian negotiation. Back in 2009, The United States wanted to reset its relationship with Russia, which was in a very bad position at that point. 
obviously it's gotten much worse since then. And Hillary Clinton decided uh, that she wanted to meet with the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. He's still a Russian foreign minister. And they decided to do it in Geneva. Some of you know about this. And one of the things that the US administration wanted was to have a big symbol that we were resetting relations. And I think some people know about this already. They asked us at the very last minute, can you find something that looks like a reset button, a giant reset button that you'd have on a computer or a TV or something like that? And so we went downstairs in the Intercontinental Hotel into the spa, and there's a giant jacuzzi there. And on the wall was an emergency off button, a big emergency off button. And our people screwed it right off the wall <laughs> and brought it upstairs and we put it in a nice box for Hillary Clinton to present to Sergei Lavrov. And this was done 40 minutes before her plane landed. And about three minutes before her plane landed, I got a message saying, does anyone know how to say reset in Russian? And I remember saying to the whole team, don't ever answer this. We're not interpreters. But as you know, if you look at the history of this, we managed, it wasn't our fault particularly, but somebody did it. We managed to have the wrong word for reset. And Sergei Lavrov immediately sat on that and said, that doesn't say reset, that says overload. And poor Hillary Clinton had to try to help and say, okay, yes, well, it means our relations, our agenda is overloaded with things we have to do. Anyway, the, the small message of this story is prepare well in advance for negotiation. Don't leave it to the last minute. That's, I mean, that's one thing that I would say. I once attended the greatest dinner in the history of the world. I didn't get to eat because I was working. And that was a dinner that was held in 1991 at Versailles, the great palace of uh, Louis XIV. And it was at the end of the Cold War uh, in 19, it was actually 1990, I think. And François Mitterrand, the French president, wanted to throw a party to celebrate the end of the Cold War with every single country from Europe and North America present there. So there it was, a giant table, 200 seats. I remember looking at the table and there was George Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev, and Maggie Thatcher was there, and Helmut Kohl was there, and Felipe Gonzalez was there. Everybody's like, boom, 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 boom. Everybody in the world was at this table. So it was really tense. And when the American delegation arrived with uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, we rushed down into the control room, and they introduced me to Sergeant Fernandez. And they said, we'd like to introduce you to the nutritional technician of President Bush. I had no idea what they're talking about. And they looked at me and they said, he's the food taster. And I thought, you're kidding. First, I had no idea we had food tasters. <laughs> it's a crazy idea. <laughs> I've just got to say. And the other thing is, I thought, well, why do you tell me about this? So I had to negotiate his way into the kitchen. They said he only has to look at and see the preparation of the food. So I went through the French Secret Service. Then I went through the Garde Républicaine and trying to explain different ways why this was necessary. And finally, they said, you can't enter the kitchen. This is France unless the chef agrees. And there's the chef preparing a dinner for 200 people. And he comes out with the white toque hat on. And I thought it was really smart. I said, well, you know, our president has unusual allergies. And you saw he got sick in Tokyo, where he actually vomited on the Japanese prime minister. You wouldn't want anything like that to happen here. So it would be really good if you let him in. And he looked at me. And then he looked at the sergeant. Then he looked at me. Then he looked at the sergeant. And then he looked at me. And he said, Mais non, vous les Américains, vous cherchez les secrets de la cuisine française, interdit, interdit. So you, the Americans, you're here to find the secrets of French cuisine. It's out. I forbid it. 
And that was it. I felt completely defeated. <laughs> and we walked back and I thought, oh, my career is over. I couldn't negotiate to get the food taster in. <laughs> Obviously, nothing whatsoever happened and it didn't turn into a problem. I told them, just take Mitterrand's plate and George Bush's plate and switch them at the last minute. <laughs> but in any event, that's an example of a kind of silly thing that happened. Again, yeah. it shows you you should prepare. And Always prepare. <laughs> it's engraved in your memory now forever. You no, know, I won't forget it. Yeah. I won't forget it. <laughs> a no. traumatic experience, perhaps. I, I love how, like you, you said how you guys went back and asked the Russian minister who was your like opposite number for the button. And he told you in like the very Russian accent that this button does not belong to us. It belongs in a place in history. <laughs> I, I remember, yeah. That, that, was, that was another one of my failures. <laughs> Hillary Clinton's people sent me to get the button back so we could change it. And his name was... Lushinin. Lushinin. Valerie Lushinin. And Lushinin said to me, No, Mark, this button does not belong to you. It does not belong to me. It belongs to history. <laughs> yeah. That button is indeed in the history books. Another question that um, we'd really like to ask you before we close mm -hmm. this episode is... If you have any advice uh, to give to the students listening to the episode about how amidst the high competition in the field of diplomacy, they can be more distinctive and have mm -hmm. more chances of mm -hmm. achieving it. Well, the first thing I would say is whoever's listening to this, whatever it is you're working on, whether it's communications or history or medicine or the law, you will work in international relations. Globalization may be slowing down a little bit, but it's not going away. Whatever it is you do, you're going to be doing international things. So learn about international relations. I urge students to focus on a couple of things to distinguish themselves. And the first one is communications, which incidentally, I, I noticed that we're in the School of Communications right now. What a coincidence. But it turns out that's the most important thing in international relations. And everybody you might seek a job with wants you to be able to express yourself in a way where they can understand what you're talking about, uh, where you can actually persuade people. So people don't like to do it. They say that various polls show that the thing people fear the most more than death is public speaking. Get out and do public speaking. Get out and force yourself. Everyone is afraid of it. Even I, having done probably hundreds, maybe thousands of speeches, find myself sometimes a little bit afraid when I get before an audience. So just force yourself and do it over and over again and recognize it's going to be difficult. Learn to write really well. And I urge you to learn to write concisely. People do not have time for 20-page papers. When you graduate from school, that's the last 20-page paper you ever write for the rest of your life. Learn to write on one page or two pages your important message. So those communication skills are really important. But I have to say, what you're studying in your various courses, people want some substantive knowledge too. Learn about a region and try to learn about it well. Study foreign languages, no matter what you do, study foreign languages. That's how you learn about what really goes on in a foreign culture, I think. I've studied every foreign language in every country I've gone to. My head's awash and confused in foreign languages, but I always try, even if I don't get very far. And learn a skill in an area. If you're studying energy, learn all about energy. Um, if you're studying foods, learn all about food. If you're studying migration, learn all about migration. You have to offer both those functional skills, 
mostly communication, but also knowledge skills. So we've got to do both of them. All of my students do internships, and I am very excited by it. Uh, they are learning a lot. I don't know how you do it because you all have an awful lot on your plates. I'm sure that my students are all exhausted all the time. But honestly, those internships are really helpful. They will teach you about what the work environment really is. More than any substance, they will teach you, okay, how does it really work inside a big NGO? What do people really do? How does it work inside Congress? How does it work inside a UN organization? So take those chances when you have them to get out and see the world as it really is. That's great advice. Thank you very much. And if you don't mind me asking, but how much marketing goes into diplomacy? Do you, do you believe marketing is a part of diplomacy? Because the, the, the story with the button, I personally did not know about that. And it seemed like a very communication-oriented thing to do. Someone once asked me when I was a senior officer if I had ever sold anything as a diplomat. And I stopped for a second and thought, and then I said, you've got to be kidding. That's exactly what we do all the time. Yeah. Diplomacy is about selling ideas. It's about selling an agreement. It's about selling an interest. It's about selling something that you want other people to acquire. And it can be very, very direct. It can be very, very direct. When I was in Belgium, I spent a lot of my time trying to convince the Belgians that they needed to buy F-35, the US fighter jet. Now, they didn't want to buy it because they're really expensive, but they knew they needed them but they weren't sure. I spent a lot of time. I took the representatives of the Ministry of Defense out on an aircraft carrier to see how the planes operate. I met with uh, the Flemish parliament, not even the, the national parliament, to try to influence different parts of uh, the country to, to try to explain to them why that was something that was really necessary for them. And they did ultimately agree. I can't say it was my contribution that made the difference, I was a diplomat and I spent three years selling airplanes. And why did I sell those airplanes? Not because of jobs, although that is something that's important, but because, and I told them this, don't be complacent. You may think there's no threat, but there is a threat and we don't know what's coming. And now we see ourselves in a situation where we all wish we had bought more F-35s and more F-16s, frankly. And that's one case, but here's another case that's really strange, but I'll share it with you. When I was in Zambia, we were working really hard against HIV and AIDS, and we were investing a lot of money in that effort. And it turned out that as we studied how it was transmitted in Zambia, one of the things we learned was, believe it or not, uh, men who were circumcised were less likely to transmit it and less likely to contract it. But Zambian tribes did not typically have as their culture the practice of circumcision. And so I had to go meet with all of the tribal leaders and uh, they have like a parliament, the House of Tribes, and try to convince them that they should, despite their history, convince young men that it would be a good thing to get circumcised. Needless to say, that's a hard sell. <laughs> <laughs> Did you and I'm not sure we were very successful, but I tried. <laughs> That's a really interesting story. We were, we were marketing. And, you know, we actually did some straight ahead marketing. We said, tell you what, to the different uh, chiefs, if you want to have one of your tribal celebrations, 
if you're willing to let us set up a tent where people can get circumcised and you're willing to speak positively about it, we can help support your tribal celebration. This is straight ahead marketing. <laughs> we were going to the grassroots. We were using uh, the opportunity of these tribal gatherings to reach masses of people we otherwise would never be able to reach. I've got another one for you. I mean, it's all marketing. It's really all marketing. Uh, when I was ambassador in Zambia, uh, one of the things we were really working on hard was trying to find ways to empower youth in different ways about their health, about jobs, about how they would support human rights and the rights of other people. And so I'd travel around the country and I'd give speeches. Honestly, they weren't that interested in me. And young people thought, I'm not sure what they thought, but you know, who is that guy? Anyway, so someone came up with the idea of bringing along with us local pop stars. And so we got actresses and actors from television and singers and poets, and they're all young people. And they would travel with us and we'd have our little thing. And then they would be on social media, reaching an audience we could never touch by ourselves. So that was marketing. Wow, that's insightful. Yeah. And I guess just like before we finally wrap this up, a small follow-up question that I have on a very optimistic note is, so given how you just spoke about marketing in diplomacy and how we as diplomats are all salesmen of our agenda, and given the fact that we have the ability to choose what type of product we sell, what would be one piece of advice you give like young people who are interested in a career in diplomacy? How can they distinguish in between a diplomat that like works for like the interests of the country versus just diplomacy for the sake of reaching an agreement? We talked about various skills, things like communications, the ability to speak in public, uh, the ability to write well, and then area expertise and expertise in areas like climate and technology and whatever else. But honestly, you may not think it's a skill, but one of the skills you really need to be an effective diplomat is empathy. You need to be able to understand what other people are thinking. And frankly, empathy, I think, is a key ingredient. It makes it possible for other people to trust you. In the end, you really need trust if you're ever going to be able to work together. And if people don't think you're empathetic, if they don't think you care about them, frankly, they're not going to trust you. Yeah. So that I think is is the secret sauce. Yeah. Because like the reason I ask this question is because you see so many diplomats who are so passionate about helping people and advocating and actually using like diplomacy as a tool for like change. But then because of like countries' positions and you know, the bureaucratic side of it, which we didn't touch so much, but we all know is there. They sort of, it, it gets lost in that. So I think that's a very good message is just have empathy and be yourself and eventually you will, you will come through. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for being here and doing this talk. Yes, it was a lovely talk. And this, thank you. Maria thank you. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure for me too.